0: This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. In years past, I normally dedicate my best films of the year episode immediately after the Oscars, but since they have been pushed back to the end of April instead of February, it would have been crazy to wait. So today, I am ranking my top 10 films of 2020. And joining me on this episode is Royce Benson, who most recently guessed on episode 133, Top 10 Neon Films, back in November. Royce, I don't know if you're on Twitter or not, but after that episode, I got some replies with the hashtag Team Royce after your apparently superior picks, so thank you for joining me today, and hopefully you don't overshadow me too much.
1: Hi, um, good to be back. Uh, no, I'm actually not on Twitter at all. I don't really have any socials. So
0: smart.
1: <laughs> that's actually kind of... Sub- <laughs> I mean, it's probably for the best. That's actually kind of cool, though, that people have done that. I didn't know that was a thing, so that's kind of cool. I... I will try not to let it get to my head too much and even though otherwise I don't know, that's this would really be your cool, last appearance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be a that would be a really interesting send off, right when my mini I become a celebrity at least just a little bit, I just like disappear and then
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know. No. Anyway, we
0: obviously know 2020 was was crazy for movies. Everything kept getting pushed back and back. James Bond, No Time to Die, has like seven release dates now. Uh, how did you yeah. mostly spend your your movie watching year?
1: Um, I mean it's it's been such a weird time to watch stuff, just because everything's getting pushed back. So, and obviously, like a lot of films that were that I were highly anticipated on my list you know, have been getting pushed back, or I haven't been able to see them when I wanted to. Um, And there's even been like a lot of films that have been coming out where unless you like got like screeners, or like you participated, like in some of the online film festivals, you weren't able to access certain films, which kind of stinks. But I mean, it's understandable. So I think I've just been kind of doing a mixture of like watching films I really want to that are like getting released, which it's nice that Having access to streaming services has really kind of opened that door up to, you know, um, watching a lot of new releases that have got transferred from theaters over to streaming. But besides that, I've also kind of used it as a time to, like, watch older stuff that's just been kind of hanging in my watch list for a really long time.
0: How about you, though? Any? uh, Well, I started the the year only as a subscriber. Only as a subscriber to Netflix, but now I also subscribe to Apple TV and uh, Disney Plus as well.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: And like you were talking about the film festival route, I did do a couple festivals this year, obviously for the podcast. So there's, there's whole episodes about them, but that definitely helped. Where there was a couple movies I was able to see like in early fall that are only just coming out now. So it's kind of interesting to sort of seeing the buzz about them. One of them being an honorable mention that I'll, I'll kind of talk about later on. But yeah, that, that's that's kind of a cool thing. It makes me feel a little legit.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Always be like one of those guys. Yeah, I saw that a year ago at con and it's just coming out now. So, you know, I'm over it.
1: Yeah, that's how I felt last year when I saw, um, I got to catch like a screening of First Cow, like with, and like Kelly Reinhart was there and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, I'm so cool. I got an early screening. <laughs> like, and then like right after that, the pandemic happened. So. That was like, I think that was the last time I was in a theater now that I think about it. But yeah, I get what you're saying. You definitely kind of feel like a little bit superior a little (laughs) bit when you kind of get that like early
0: access. You're like, dang, man. I'll try to not let that go to my head
1: fair enough yeah
0: all right uh now I think it's good to kind of start out with maybe what movies you didn't get a chance to see so what were some films from last year that you weren't able to catch up with that you think that if you had seen them it might have made the cut for you
1: um well just kind of scrolling down my list of films that I that I wanted to but didn't get a chance to see I'll just like kind of briefly list them really quickly um and these are I'm sure there's some films that we're gonna Keep talking about. So, a lot of similar names, but I had on my list like another round. I didn't get to see that. Uh, Kajillionaire, uh, Dick Johnson is Dead, um, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, Nomad Land, Wolf Walkers, Promising Young Woman, and then uh, Minari. And for like one reason or another, whether it be like I just didn't get around to it or I didn't, you know, I didn't do one of the online film festivals, it's a film. There are films that have kind of eluded me. Um, the last year, and so hopefully I want to try getting to them, like, in the very near future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's some similarity with me. I've seen some of yours. For me, uh, Minari is probably the biggest one, uh, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, which I don't even think you can watch anywhere yet, other than there was a couple festival screenings, Pieces of a Woman, the Netflix movie I just haven't had time for. And then uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to say any more about it, but I haven't seen any of the Small Axe films, which I know you're going to maybe talk about a little bit, but uh, I definitely have some questions about that, about whether or not is it a TV show or are they movies sort of thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll love to talk about it late because I have some thoughts on it.
0: All right. So uh, let's just get into this. What's your number 10 movie, Royce?
1: Uh, my number 10 pick, it came out uh, last year. It's Possessor, directed by Brandon Cronenberg. When uh, Tasa Vos, an elite corporate assassin, uses uses brain implant technology to take control of other people's bodies to terminate high-profile targets, as she sinks deeper into her latest assignment, Voss becomes trapped inside a mind that threatens to obliterate her. Now, I actually, this was one of the films I think I talked about that was on my list back when we did that... Um, the we did a ranking one. list for a uh, neon films mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, and I, I think I rated The Possessor pretty high. I think it was one or two on that list. Because um, it was just a film that really, it was a film that struck me uh, in a really interesting way when I saw it. Because uh, first off, it was really cool that um, Brandon is now making films just like his father, David, which I've still not seen any of his, his, any of his dad's films. But um, without giving really too much away... It's it's a very trippy experience that I think you should try going into like without much kind of backstory. I hadn't even really seen the trailer. I had just seen the poster. I think it's like a really cool poster where it's this like girl's face and it looks like a mask. It's like all mangled and stuff. And it was it was very like evocative. Just like a, the poster, and I was like, that's interesting. I wonder like what kind of ideas is is going to be tackling. And when you go into it, you kind of realize it starts having these different ideas of like you know identity crisis and you know what does it mean to be yourself and what would it be like if someone overtook your body and it gave me some fears i never realized i had that kinda like, I kind of like afterwards i kind of was it, it, there's some thoughts that are definitely left over that make your skin kind of crawl you're like you think about it when you're lit, up late at night i think we kind of talked about that last time but mm-hmm. it's definitely a film that that sticks with you um for a long time after you've finished it but yeah, it's a great film. I'd recommend it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. i I found it a little cold for me. I quite liked it. I almost find that I've enjoyed reading about it more afterwards and like seeing other people's thoughts because it's such a the type of movie where it evokes so much discussion from about what does it all mean, the interpretation of it. And just like all the practical effects that they used to it was just mind-blowing. I saw I saw this little video that basically showed all the effects in it were done in camera which is insane to me, and, and there's just some really crazy imagery where it's the type of movie that really does get stuck in your head, whether it's, like, the opening sequence or um, the Sean Bean sequence. Like, I, I, it's, I, you really don't want to talk about this movie, but, yeah, if you say these sort of things, you'll, you'll know what I mean, and those images are definitely burned in my psyche. Oh,
1: 100%. Uh, what's your number
0: 10? My number 10 movie is Promising Young Woman, directed by Emerald Fennell.
2: Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay.
1: You okay?
2: You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, we had a connection okay how old am i what are my hobbies what's my name sorry maybe that one's too hard
0: which is about a young woman traumatized by a tragic event in her past seeks out vengeance against those who crossed her path now this movie i feel like i need to tread a little bit carefully when uh critically praising it it's interesting because I remember a few years ago when Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri came out, I hated that movie. Like, I just I just couldn't understand why anyone would like it, and I'm reading all these reviews and people talking about how much they love it, I'm like, but don't you see all the flaws in it? And now I kind of feel like on the flip side where everyone's like, this movie is so flawed, and I'm like, don't you see what's so great about this movie? And so I, I feel like it's completely the other end. This is about uh, a woman who acts drunk to get picked up by quote-unquote nice guys at bars, and then when they take her home, they usually try to assault her. And then she snaps out of her faux drunkenness to teach them a lesson, basically. And what I found really interesting is every step along the way, she gives everyone a chance to correct themselves. She'll drunkenly say, what are you doing? Or please stop or things like that. And it just it's like it's such a nightmare where you're like this you can see this happening all over the place and you and you hear stories about it, horror stories, and and she gives these people every opportunity to write the ship and they choose not to and they go past the line and then that's when you know the the lesson sort of takes place. It includes people who don't believe victims of rape and assault too. So it's it's just very fascinating the way that they approach it. I know a lot of people wanted it to be a much more of a actual Uh, revenge thriller, and it's not. It's much more meditative, and it really sort of plays with, you know, this idea of pop culture and and the way we view women and the way that they have uh, control over their bodies and things like that and and their relationship with men and alcohol and rape culture and all this sort of stuff. And It's very fascinating. At times, it's very scary, and, you know, there's some great lines in it about how uh, it's a guy's worst nightmare to be accused of sexual assault. And then the girl turns around and says, and can you guess what a girl's worst nightmare is? And so it's sort of lines like that where just like, the people that should, that this movie is directed at, it's probably going to go straight over their heads anyway. So it's, it's it's a very tough movie to sort of describe. And I, I, I do want to tread lightly both in plot and in discourse because it's the type of movie where I don't want to come off of, of sounding... Uh, I, I don't even know how how I want to say this, but the, the, I, I definitely sort of feel like I need to tread lightly because I, I have found that there has been uh, a lot of very vocal uh people, feminist women who have come out against this movie and, and I don't want to be stepping on their toes of what they view as uh, a movie that doesn't really speak truth to this situation. But for me, the way it highlights everything, I think it worked for me.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, just going off of from the way you're describing it, it's definitely like a film that like i like I, I'm, i've am i been highly anticipating and i really want to watch a lot because you know i have heard so much about it in particular a lot of people a lot of forums online are t- constantly talking about the ending
3: mm-hmm. and
1: there's a lot of discourse about the ramifications of that and so i don't really know much about the film which i want to keep it that way um but it does seem like one of those other like timely films that's uh That got, you know, released and it's interesting that it is divisive and I find that fascinating. But yeah, I'm really excited to see this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I've read some, some excellent reviews both for and against the movie. And I think it's the type of movie where it really does help being able to see both sides.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Like I think more, sometimes the more divisive, the better, if anything, because then it makes you want to watch it more.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Now, throughout the show, we're going to hear from friends of the podcast with their picks for their favourite movie of the year. First up, we have Hugh Dempsey from the Please Watch This podcast, who was heard on episode 135, Make Remake Citizen Kane. Indiana. Hello,
2: Dakota, and the good listeners of Contra Zoom Pod. My name's Hugh Dempsey. I'm the co-host of Please Watch This podcast. And my favourite film of 2020 um, was the Christopher Nolan film, Tenet, for the simple reason is, once again, Christopher Nolan proves... That you don't have to treat your audience as if they're stupid to create an exciting, thought-provoking and interesting action film. And I thought this was the best film of 2020, given that all the other films were delayed. It was a real um, beacon of hope, I guess you could say, during the pandemic. And... um, Yeah, it was just a great film, had great action, had a great performance from John David Washington. He's a real leading man. Uh, Robert Pattinson once again proved he was brilliant. Um, Elizabeth Debicki was uh, the emotional heart of the film, and the film was just all-round exciting, interesting, and shows that you can have interesting concepts at the heart of big Hollywood action films. So that's my pick for 2020.
0: So that was Hugh's take on Tenet. Royce, what is your number nine film?
1: My number nine film is going to be uh, Boy's State, which is my only, my first and only documentary on this, class, uh, on this list. It was directed by Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain.
0: I come from a very modest family. Uh, I'm on the course to be the first one to graduate from high school.
4: I'm a progressive person, and I'm in a room full of mostly conservative people.
2: Our masculinity
4: shall not be infringed. Yeah! I've never seen so many
2: white people ever. I feel like everybody has this secret underlying need for
1: bipartisanship. And essentially, it is an unusual experiment where about, uh, just about 1,000 17-year-old boys from Texas joined together to build representative government from the ground up. Now, before I had watched this documentary, I didn't even know Boys State was a thing. But apparently, it doesn't take place in too many states. But Texas is one of the main uh forerunners of this idea of where they try getting high schoolers high school boys um especially you know get boys that are seniors to kind of venture into learning more about government and what it's really about and it was really it was a fascinating journey for me because it never feels like an actual documentary it continuously feels like it's an actual like drama taking place because of all the twists and turns that that go along the ways you kind of learn where these boys are starting to kind of learn about government and they're kind of falling into that same generational problem that a lot of politicians we see have today, you know, where they're picking sides between being Republican or Democrat and trying to find some kind of bipartisan agreement where everyone agrees on something. And I think that's a very timely film because there's a lot of people today that aren't really educated about politics, myself included. And, you know, in a very politically charged world that we live in, today i think it's incredibly relevant and i think a lot of people need to be taking notice of this film because i think it highlights a lot of the fe- a lot of fears that we've had that the next generation thinks are real especially that are going on in politics and a lot of these different skewed views or these biased views and so what i think a lot of people can take from this film is to at least encourage them to stop following necessarily what sometimes their parents or people around them's political views but for people to start becoming more independent doing their own research and finding out what political side they fit in because sometimes it's just not as simple as simple cut and dry but for me this was an incredibly engaging documentary and i actually i really enjoy it it was one of my favorites this year
0: i have to say the movie was like equally part horrifying and inspiring at the same time like yeah, that's a good in, way to describe it. Yeah, like, obviously it's in Texas, and, and gun culture is huge there, but it's just fascinating that, like, the number one thing that they were concerned about was, one, gun culture, and then number two, abortion rights for a bunch of 17-year-old boys, were like, that just, like, is terrifying to hear.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's
0: definitely very unsettling.
1: Another weird thing about it, too, is, is I feel like anybody that watches it we all kind of know people that are like this. Mm-hmm. You you at least had one or two friends in high school that like, just because they, you know, read a couple articles online, they were immediately, they immediately like viewed themselves as like these, you know, political activists, like they knew everything. And it's this really easy thing we can get into, especially in the internet c- culture where we have access to news on an almost constant loop basis. And there's this point that's made at the beginning of the documentary that I really like where they were talking about 1984 and George Orwell's, you know, vision of like a dark, uh, dark dystopian future. And in 1984, they obviously talk about, you know, how the government, how they take control of citizens is by stripping them and taking away information as a way to control the populace. But what's argued in today, because George Orwell didn't uh, predict just how big the internet would become, it would actually be the opposite the go- The government and different facets of it would actually try giving us too much information because if we were overstimulized, we would kind of become apathetic towards news because we would see it on a constant loop. We would see this constant acts, you know of like a- egregious violence. You know, you know when we're we watch the news on a weekly basis, there's something insane happening almost nearly every week, and we've be- kind of become desensitized to it to a point where we start not even caring, and it's sad because we're really losing a lot of empathy when we're doing that. And so I do agree with what you did, uh, what you said about this. Like it is inspiring because there's a lot of people, uh, a couple of the kids included that I'm rooting for. And I hope go into politics. And there's a lot that really scare me. And I hope don't go into politics one day.
0: Well, it looks like uh, Steven, the, the main guy who is going for the governorship in that movie does seem like he's very politically active still. So uh, there is some hope. <laughs> there is hope. Yes, I'll vote for Steven for president, dude, man. Like, that guy's amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right, my number nine film is The Assistant, directed by Kitty Green. A searing look at the day in the life of an assistant to a powerful executive. As Jane follows her daily routine, she grows increasingly aware of the insidious abuse that threatens every aspect of her position. This is the type of movie that is a very slow burner on on first look. It's just, like, a single day in the life of of this one woman and it's supposed to be she's working for a, a Harvey Weinstein type of figure and we don't, we never actually see the boss, we only hear him or, or sort of see him in silhouette and uh, we don't actually see any sort of abuse, but it's more how is it tracked through the industry, especially in this one office. She fears that there's this one young woman who has been hired as a secretary even though she's just a waitress that uh, the boss met at a film festival in Colorado or something like that. And uh, he puts her up in a hotel room and, and things like that. And it just sort of like, You know the other secretaries know about it, and then the executive, the other executives joke about it, and then she goes and talks to the HR manager, and he's like, "Well, do you have any actual proof of anything that's happening?" And it's sort of one of this thing where you know, much like uh, my last movie promising young woman how do you prove something where there isn't actual evidence there which is you know so rampant how do you how do you prove sexual assault or you know power imbalances where you're taking advantage of someone how do you prove that without actual evidence if it's just you know, becomes your word against someone else's word. And and that's what's so terrifying is it just very slowly, you know, bit by bit by bit by bit, it all sort of adds up. You take any one, one, you know, evidence or accusation out on its own, and it means absolutely nothing. But when you put it together with a whole pile, you have to look at it and be like, look, can you not see everything that's happening? Can you not understand the weight of this all? And then it, she's sort of left with this decision of, do I quit because no one is going to take my claim seriously and lose what I want as hope to be a producer one day? Or, you know, do I keep trying to fight this fight and, and push back against it? And I'm just a lowly secretary where I'll probably get, Uh, fired and blackballed from doing this. So it's like, well, what choice does she really have in this matter? Where either way, it's, you know, she's going to lose everything she wants or someone else is going to probably get hurt or worse. And so it's just a a very, you know, tough movie to watch at times because it's not what you see, it's what you think.
1: Mm. Well, those are some really interesting points you made, especially um, when you were talking about how, how you think it kind of compared to Promising Young Woman. And even though I've seen like neither of these films, it's really interesting that, you know, there are uh, this slew of like movies like this starting to come out where there's more of an awareness, self-awareness, especially in um, the film industry against, you know, accusations, because it, it was kind of a taboo subject for the longest of time, but it wasn't until the whole Weinstein case came up, you know, the whole hashtag Me Too movement came up where a lot of people had a lot more awareness that stuff was like this was going on, you know, not only for you know women but also men you heard cases of, there, there's been actors and um, actresses and then other people behind the scenes who have been starting to come out about a lot of this you know the, the darker underbelly of what's been going on in the industry and it is really disheartening of you know all this news but it also there I don't know I feel a little bit hopeful about it because there's awareness about it now and that audiences are now being able to kind of get a you know, a view into what's really going on. You know, it's all oh, this discussion is really I think gonna hopefully spark change in the long run. But um from what you said, you know, this is a film that I missed out on, but it's one I definitely wanna check out. As
0: well. Yeah. For for anyone that watches Ozark, it stars uh Julia Garner, who who plays Ruth Langmore on the show, and it's a completely different character for her. So if you really want to see her flex her her acting and see the differences between those two roles, it's definitely worth a watch. Now our next friend is sharing a pick is John Brody, who was heard on episode one twenty four, Tiff twenty twenty. Hey Dakota,
4: I hope you're doing well. Uh, my selection for my favorite film of twenty twenty is Wolfwalkers the animated film that debuted at TIFF and was recently released by Apple Studios. Uh, You know, this animated film was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Uh, Each frame looked like a a painting that, you know, on its own um, would, would have been enjoyable, but it was tied together with some beautiful music and, um, some pretty, pretty solid voice acting. While the story wasn't exactly, uh, the most unique or imaginative, um, you know, they, they kind of tied in some, some cool subtext, um, in it that I, that I really enjoyed, and I really, um, found interesting, you know, learning about and, and, uh, seeing on a rewatch. So that's my pick for the year. Uh, hopefully we'll get some more great movies in 2021.
0: All right. Now, Royce, this is going to be a little bit interesting because I don't know how you want to do this. I'm going to have a meeting with you on air. Your number eight and my number seven are the same movie and my number eight and your number seven are the same movie. Do we want to do them one at a time or do we want to go in order like it was supposed to be?
1: I mean, honestly, I don't I don't really mind if we just kind of, you know,
0: do it just kind of in the order it's in. I mean, we're probably going to bring up the same things anyway <laughs> all right you know what let's let's just sort of combine it so your number eight and my number seven is palm Springs. so so how about you uh describe what that movie is
1: okay yeah I'll just do that um so uh yes my number eight film is palm springs uh directed by max barbacow and the best way i kind of can describe this is it's basically just kind of a a, a somewhat updated version of groundhog day and uh, it stands uh the cast includes Andy Samberg and Christine Melody, who both give fantastic uh, dual performances in this film. Uh, it's, you know, one we, bo- we both touched on when we were doing uh, our list on Neon's filmography. But it's just, it's such a fun time. It, it came out during a time, I think, during the summer, you know, when we were kind of in the midst of, like, um, you know, being in lockdown. And it's just such a lighthearted film. It's so much fun just from beginning to end. Um I really encourage anybody uh, to really see this film because it's it is genuinely a great time. Did you have any thoughts on it?
0: Yeah, like you're absolutely right. It it just flows so well. I don't think you know. I have been a fan of Andy Sandberg's for for quite a while back on SNL. I love Brooklyn Nine Nine. I like his movies like this or mm-hmm. The Lonely Island as well. But this was interesting because while he's definitely more of the comedic role in this movie, he has some really serious moments as well. And I think he does a great job with that. But the real star, of course, is Kristen Malotti, who really has a breakthrough performance that I I hope sort of gets noticed around awards time that we're, we're approaching now because she, she just anchors it. She has so much emotional depth to it that really adds to the humor, but also brings a whole lot of seriousness to it. You know, it's it's impossible not to compare it to Groundhog Day, but mm-hmm. where Groundhog Day is a lot more philosophical, I like that this one, you know, doesn't try to over-explain that as much and just sort of lets us go along for the ride and and get to sort of see all the craziness that ensues, we, you know, the crazy flashbacks of of seeing who Andy Samberg's character has slept with and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the, the dance sequences that they learn and all the different ways they, they manage to kill themselves. Like, it's hilarious. It's sex, I assume. You fuck other people in here? Great question. You must, right? I have, but you know, it takes a lot of work. And I try to live my life at this
4: point with as little effort as possible. Huh. Have we roped up? No, at least I don't think so. So sort of like who else right uh well besides misty daisy the barkeep you know i once hit a guy with his car
1: yeah no it's such a fun movie like i couldn't help but just like smiling the whole time and i don't think i've been able to say that about a lot of films i've watched recently so you know just on that note not only is it a another fun comedy film to just kick back and watch but you know it's a very contemplative film you know where you know, it talks about, you know, larger issues about, you know, what our purpose in life is, especially when we feel like, you know, things are in this perpetual cycle. And so, yeah, it's amazing. It's so much fun. Uh, It's such a joy of a film. That's the only way I can describe it.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, moving on, my number eight and your number seven is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, uh, which was directed by Charlie Kaufman which is, full of misgivings, a young woman travels with her new boyfriend to his parents' secluded farm. Upon arriving, she comes to question everything she thought she knew about him and herself. Now, this was the movie. I watched it, and I was like, okay, I, I, I sort of think I get it, but I wasn't really sure. And then I ended up listening to uh, a podcast uh, by a friend of the show, Callum McNabb, who we're going to hear from just after this, Scare where he talked about this movie. And it just sort of unlocked everything for me. So a little bit of spoiler talk here, cause I think it's sort of impossible to really talk about this movie without spoilers, but this whole idea that the entire movie takes place in the Jesse Plemons character's head. And what we're seeing uh, with the Jesse Buckley character is probably completely fabricated in his mind. This idea of, of sort of wasted potential as he's looking back on his life as he's this old janitor thinking of killing himself and what he imagined his life should have been. He should have been with this woman that he met at a bar, that he should have dated her. He should have won the Nobel Prize and all this sort of stuff as he got older. And it's just so interesting. Once that he sort of, like, explained that, it just sort of unlocked the whole movie for me. I'm like, I understand exactly what this movie's about.
1: No, yeah, I, I feel like I had a similar experience when I watched this, because this was actually the first Kaufman movie I've ever seen. It wasn't until after I watched this that kind of encouraged me to watch his other films that he's written and directed and I remember yeah I went into it not really knowing too much about it I knew who Kaufman was you know I knew there was a little bit of backstory I knew but just going into it at first I was like at first I was like what the hell is going on because I was so lost you know and I think it is really easy you sometimes get lost especially in Kaufman's films you know his dialogue um can, when it's read a certain way he has so many different ideas going around what's amazing is that a lot of these ideas are able to work and actually land as a story. And yeah, th- same thing with you. After I watched it, I was really just trying to process everything I watched. And then it wasn't until, yeah, I, there was a, you know, I tried looking up a couple of sources, you know, seeing a, a couple of like reviews people had made about it and same thing with you. It kind of like opened it up to me and I was like, Oh, okay. I understand this means this, this means that. And it really all kind of came together. Cause at first I didn't even really know what kind of a rating to give it because I knew it was amazing, but I didn't know how to like even process what I had just watched. And I think, I don't think anyone's going to be able to like even try to process it like on a first watch. I think it's definitely one that takes, you know, rewatches because there's so many fine tuned details. But I think the biggest praise I can give the film is just how well it works as an adaption from a, from a book. Um, and come awards season, you know, I really do, you know, Kaufman, you know, you know, takes a takes his rightful place and seat um, in the filmmaking world and hopefully, you know, some Oscars come his way or anyone else in the cast because, you know, it is a brilliant film and I do hope a lot of people watch it because I think a lot of people can kind of relate to um, the main character's dilemma, of kind of that wasted potential and you know, I think that's something that plagues on the minds of a lot of people.
0: I think sure. a good way of describing it is like this movie is is a puzzle. You you open the box and, you, you know, it's 500 pieces and they're all just sort of sitting there in the box. And you're like, I, I know this is supposed to be a sunset, but I don't really know how to make it a sunset. And then after you kind of unlock it, you're it's just like it magically puts the puzzle together and you're like, I understand you've got the beach, you've got the water, you've got the sky, you've got the sun. I understand how it all works together. And and it just sort of something that like, it was just so instantaneous where I was able to understand a to B to C to D all the way through where it just made perfect sense. This, this movie is just so fantastic because of that.
1: Yeah. I, I can agree more with you, man. It's a definitely a standout of the year for sure.
0: All right. So the next Friend we're having on is Callum McNab, who I just mentioned, and he's been on the show a few times. Most recently on episode 104, make remake The Invisible Man, and this is his favorite film. Hi, movie.
2: I'm Callum McNab, one of the co-hosts of the Scare Producing Podcast, and my pick for favorite movie of 2020 is Rose Glass's directional debut, Saint maud Sadly, due to the COVID restrictions that have plagued us for the best part of a year now, this film hasn't yet had the pleasure of being released everywhere. Um, I believe. USA and Canada are getting a limited and online release in the coming days or weeks, so if you haven't seen or heard of this movie yet, make sure you keep an eye out for it when it finally does drop. It's a horror story of faith and loneliness, and I don't really want to say much more than that, except to remind everyone that Parasite director Bong Joon-ho placed Rose Glass on a list of 20 filmmakers to watch, so if it's good enough for an Oscar winner, it's good enough for you.
0: Now he's seeing a movie, St. Maude, that isn't released anywhere else, but that's because he's in England. So I know he's feeling uh, very proud of that pick. Uh, so now, Royce, what is your number six film of the year? My number
1: six film of the year is going to be Lovers Rock, directed by Steve McQueen. And kind of like we mentioned earlier, this is part of Steve McQueen's um, larger, I've heard it described as kind of this anthology series. Um, that he essentially, after he made his 2018 film *Widows*, a couple years ago, he basically essentially set out to make this anthology series. This film, in particular, takes place in a in the early 1980s in a, one of the suburbs of London, and is a fictional story of young love and music at a blues party. That's what the essential like synopsis of it reads. Um, this was definitely a standout. I, I ended up watching them all. Uh, every one of the small acts films throughout uh, throughout the weeks they were releasing. And I was just blown away with each one, but lovers rock is definitely one of the highlights of it Uh, simply because it's not a very long film. It's, it's pretty short. I think it's just about an hour, but, and it's about a love story about these two people that meet in this, you know, at this, uh, at a friend of theirs house. And there's literally at one point, I forgot what the song's called, but literally there's a during a dance sequence the same song plays like five times but it doesn't get old because you're just like you're you're just lost in what's happening it's so it's so atmospheric it grabs a hold of you because you're just it's so beautiful to watch these people dance in this room uh and you just feel like you're there you know you feel you know the sweat of the characters you you can smell like the tobacco from the cigarettes as as the camera kind of wanders through this crowd of you know dancing people and it's a, it's an incredible experience I, I think steve mcqueen has done such a brilliant job with this series i would recommend it to ev- every, everyone because essentially what he's done is he's made five separate movies and of, there's a lot of contention whether they count as movies or not but you know considering the last couple of years where we've been getting more of these anthology series i think the the line is really blurring between what's film and what's TV. Because honestly, I think they're at the same level right now. And I think uh, Small Axe is, a, and I'll talk more about it, you know, with um, some other picks from the series I have later on down this list. But it's an incredible experience, and I know you haven't seen it yet, but I would highly recommend it to you and just anyone, because it's such a love letter to film and the past.
3: I've been you
0: It's, it's definitely on my list and, and I regret not being able to squeeze them in before recording this because I'm, I'm sure it at least would have made my honorable mentions at worst and probably made my actual list at best. But Yeah, I, I'm just so curious about this, you know, is it a movie, is it not? You know, I look at something maybe like Black Mirror where they're all standalone episodes. They're all, you know, 60 plus minutes, similar sort of style where it's, you know, there's no connective tissue between them. Are, is that a TV show? Cause that's considered a TV show. Cause it was originally aired on the BBC, which, you know, so did small acts that aired on the BBC as well. So I'm just, I, I just don't really know where it stands. I guess at this point it doesn't really matter. Like as long as it's not like multiple segments, <laughs> uh, it's a movie. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's a weird thing to consider what makes a movie and what does it. But, um, I don't know. I, 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 de- I just recommend it to anyone. It definitely, I think, fits the bill as a film, and even though I can't get nominated at the Oscars, unfortunately, I hope it picks up something, hopefully, like at the Emmys or the Golden Globes. I don't know. I think that's for television, so yeah. hopefully it picks up something. Uh, What was your number six?
0: My number six is Another Round, the Thomas Vinterberg movie starring Mads Mikkelsen, which is about four friends, all high school teachers, test a theory that they will improve their lives by maintaining a constant level of alcohol in their blood. Now, really, you know, Mads Mikkelsen is the lead in this, so it mostly centers around him, although all four friends do play an important part. But we meet him, he's this lethargic, depressed Man who uh, has basically lost all of his passion for teaching. His wife is distant from him. His kids don't respect him. And he just sort of seems like, you know, if this was another movie, at the end of it, he probably would have committed suicide or something like that. But then after a night drinking with his friends, they talk about this philosophy that if you always maintain a little bit of a buzz, you're gonna have more confidence, you're gonna have more energy, you're gonna be able to put your best self forward, you're gonna be able to uh, receive things better. All this sort of stuff is just gonna be slightly heightened and make you a better person overall. So they decided to test that out and right away, it starts showing, you know, uh, paying its dividends. He's a history teacher and all his, you know, kids are normally falling asleep in his class and suddenly his kids are super engaged, you know, they're they're jumping up to volunteer, they're laughing at his stories, the way he's able to like weave his history into real life and, and make it remember memorable for them, especially as these kids are about to go to college and stuff like that. So it's a really key moment for them where they, they really need to be paying attention to school and figuring out what they want to do with their lives. And the other teachers are the same way. One's a gym teacher, one's a music teacher. And I can't remember what the fourth teacher is, but yeah, they're, you know, suddenly the people around them like them. They're more fun to be around. They they're happier with life. And so they decide they want to up it up a little bit more, start drinking a little bit more so that, you know, they always got their, their, uh, breathalyzers on them. And of course, as they decide to fly a little bit closer to the sun, you can expect what's going to happen. Things are getting worse. You know, you're drunk at work, you're falling over, you're getting sick, you can't drive anywhere. Uh, you're more prone to violent outbursts, whether it be both verbal or physical, things like that. And one of the teachers eventually gets caught being drunk at work and, you know, there's a huge fallout from that. And so it's just sort of like, how do we interpret drinking culture, especially a very European versus North American way where, you know, in, in most countries in Europe, at a young age, you have wine with your parents at dinner. It's, you know, it's not a foreign concept to by the time you're like, 13, 14, 15, you know how to drink and you know what your limits are and your responsibility. Whereas in North America, it's still so taboo where it's like, yeah, the teenagers drink, but they do it in secret. They, they have to hide it. And then of course, this idea of addiction and, and how we work with that. There's just so many interesting themes. It's a funny movie. It's a sad movie. It's a Danish movie where, you know, it's got a little bit of everything in a killer Mads Mikkelsen performance.
1: Well from just how you described it like once again that sounds amazing like it was a film that I really I desperately wanted to watch before we we uh we had this um we recorded this episode but unfortunately I wasn't able to uh I might even try watching it after because that just sounds like that sounds like an amazing film yeah especially you know considering like that that is such a original and unique topic that you can't really tell if it was a film made in the U.S. that's a That's very much sounds like a European film. And since I haven't even really gotten into European films, that would be a great film to see, especially since I am also a huge fan of Mad's um, previous work. And um, I don't know, that just sounds really interesting. And I don't know, from from what it sounds like what you were saying, that sounds like something you can't.
0: Mm-hmm. And if anyone has seen it already, uh, Mickelson did previously pair with uh, the director, Thomas Vinterberg, on his last movie called The Hunt, which is a far more serious film about uh, a, a young about a teacher who gets accused of uh, molesting a child, and falsely accused in the sort of fallout that that happens. Uh, and so Mickelson plays the, the, the teacher in there that gets accused of, of the crime. Terrific movie as well. So if anyone has seen Another Round, likes it, definitely check out The Hunt. Now it's time to hear from Maria Escrabano, who was also heard on our TIFF 2020 wrap-up show.
5: Last year was a weird year for movies, with a lot of the much-anticipated ones uh, being pulled from release, uh, and of course the rise of streaming platforms. So it was hard to pick uh, a favorite because it was, generally speaking, a very subdued year for cinema. Push comes to shove, though, um, I would say it would be The Father. Still resonates um, months after I've seen it. Um, Just all in all, well made, uh, tightly written, well acted with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. It kept me riveted from beginning to end. Uh, So, given the opportunity, I tell everybody do please catch it uh, and give it uh, a good go. I'll also take this opportunity to highlight a movie I happened upon um, just by. flipping through Netflix, as we all did during the pandemic. Um, It's the devil all the time. Um, It reminded me a lot of a Quentin Tarantino-type film where a lot of the the storylines intersect. Um, Again, no expectations, just happened upon it. But I thought, again, well-acted and interesting, interesting plot. Um, That's my thoughts for 2020.
0: So she talked about the father that made uh, my list of movies I need to see. Uh, and, and hopefully I'll be able to, to get to see that soon. But Royce, what was your, your number five film?
1: My number five film is Mangrove, uh, directed by Steve McQueen. And once again, is a part of, uh, the, the small mini miniseries. And it was the first episode, um, released in this anthology. And essentially it's telling the true story of the Mangrove nine, uh, specifically Frank Crinch Crenshaw, who was, um, an owner of this place called the Van Grove um, that was in a suburb of London and the trial that took place in in 1970. And essentially, it's a really interesting story because you're not, because I think very often, especially in the U.S., we see a lot of stories about the civil rights movement and what was going on here in the U.S. with Martin Luther King Jr. and everything that went down with that in in the 60s. But what isn't taught a lot is you know, what was happening over in England around the same time. I know at least when I was learning history, I didn't know even these any of these stories. Even Steve McQueen in an interview, he was talking about how he never knew about a lot of these stories that were happening in neighborhoods that he grew up in. He didn't even know his own history when he was walking down those same streets, which is fascinating because there are so many parallels to a lot of the cultural and racial conflicts that were happening both in the U S and uh, over in the u k which really goes to show that a lot of these a lot of racial tension and a lot of conflicts that come from this are it's a universal thing it's seen and and it happens in nearly every culture, which is sad, but you know it's something that keeps happening over and over again in history and what's fascinating about this story is just the resilience of the main characters. the main character uh Frank, he is tired of the police essentially you know coming to his place and You know, sometimes you know, uh, you know, giving him verbal warnings to close down, or assaulting, uh, assaulting him and other people there, and just generally just causing problems. And it is until he joins up with these younger, uh, these younger people, he ends up joining up with the Black Panther Party, which gives him the courage to take his case to trial because he's he's upset of getting harassed over and over again. And it's a brilliant story. It's such a, an amazing courtroom drama and its I'm sure it's not going to be the only courtroom drama film that came out this year but at least on my end this was the best courtroom drama film because it's such an enthralling story it's one I've never heard of and it was just brilliant storytelling you know Steve McQueen like I can't rave enough about this man he's one of the finest directors to come out of you know the previous decade even though his movies are very sparse you know he's he's made some really big home runs you know Hunger shame uh 12 years of Slave, you know widows and now this series i think it's really amazing to see him take um uh, take his shot at more of an anthology series rather than a straightforward feature even though what's so great about all of small acts each film that uh, is each epi- episodic um uh, feature i guess it it feels like its own movie it feels like its own world and yeah i can't I can't say enough about Mangrove especially. It's definitely my favorite of the series, but I would ro- recommend all of Small Axe to anyone.
0: Well, you're certainly putting me to shame with those two picks. Uh, I, I, I do need to catch up with them, and, I, and I'm so glad that you were able to and, and got to praise them here.
1: Yeah, I, I would highly recommend it. It's just such an it's an amazing experience that I think everyone should really enjoy. Uh, what was your next pick?
0: My number five film is Emma, the film from Autumn to Wild. <laughs>
3: Dearly beloved friends, we gather here in this time of man's great innocence. Innocence? Innocence? Innocence. No?
0: Which is based uh, on the Jane Austen novel that takes place in 1800s England, where a well-meaning but selfish young woman meddles in the love lives of her friends. This is a movie that that came out very early in the year. I think it was like a February release, so I caught up with it. You know, not long after it came out, and it just stayed near the top of my my best of list list the whole time. It is this delicious comedy drama love story. It's got a little bit of everything. The sets and costumes are just stunning, like easily one of the most the one of the best looking movies I've ever seen. But Anya Taylor Joy, who's quickly becoming one of my favorite actors, just completely sells everything in this movie. She's this woman who uh, her mother has passed away, so she's just living with her father. So she basically takes a personal vow that she'll never get married. And so uh, to make up for it, she basically plays matchmaker in her town, specifically with her one friend who is of uh, lesser stature, who she takes an interest in and wants to help raise her out of the situation that she is in. Uh, and it's just, it's just hilarious because of course, soon as you start meddling in people's love lives and there's actual feelings involved, things are going to come back and bite you in the ass afterwards. And sure enough, it absolutely does. And she's got two men that are sort of trying to court her and she's trying to both divert it, but at the same time is sort of interested in them, but also doesn't want to leave her father alone because if she marries a man, then she becomes property of the man and has to live with him and becomes you know, part of his family and no longer part of her family, which is completely relatable today with, you know, how do you, how how does a modern woman sort of view themselves in relationships and what are the sort of, you know, these expectations of the traditional gender roles and marriage roles and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a type of movie that, yes, it's very much about the 1800s. It's also about today. And there's just some fantastic gags throughout this movie, specifically uh, with Bill Nye as Anya Taylor, Joy's father. Absolutely hilarious. Every scene he's in, just you crack up by what he does because he, he sort of puts on this sort of senile old man act, but he very clearly knows everything that is going on uh, to great comedic effect.
1: That sounds amazing. I mean, this was a film I didn't really actually hear about too much last year, but from what it sounds like you're describing, it is, it sounds like it's kind of an underrated gem because it's, you know, I didn't. I think because I didn't hear too much about it, I never really came around to it because it just didn't seem like a film that I would find that interesting. Because I'm still not too big on period dramas, mm-hmm. but from what you, the way you're describing it, it's more of like this kind of this comedy, um, and so it's definitely something that sounds intriguing to me now. Because and it makes me wish I had you know, caught it originally when it came out.
0: There's a few things that were sort of working against it in my mind for me is a movie that comes out in February normally is The Dumping Ground. that There's no good movies that come out in February. And I was like, well, I guess this movie, you know, a period piece drama, they probably wanted it for, you know, award season to come out October, November, December, but it probably got bad test screening reviews. And so they're just dumping it in February and hope that they can make a little bit of money back on it. And the other thing is, I've never really been a Jane Austen guy. Uh, I've never read her full books, but the the passages that I've read and other stuff that I've seen, I've never really cared for it. But this movie is just so clever and quick witted. Where like the jokes are just nonstop, just keep coming, keep coming. Some of them are visual gags, some of them are just verbal wordplay where they're sparring with their words. Uh, but there's definitely a whole lot more going into this movie than I think people probably gave it credit for. All right, now it's time to hear from Naomi Wada who's going to talk about her favorite film. She was heard on episode 130, Imaginative.
4: My name's Naomi, and my favorite film of 2020 is Portrait of a Lady on Fire by Celine Sciamma. I love queer films, and when it's beautifully done, I love it even more. This movie shows desires, sometimes flammably raw, sometimes hidden objectivity of beauty, and the strength of promises. I hope to see more lesbian films in 2021 as beautiful as this one.
0: So Naomi doing the honors introducing Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which happens to be your number four movie. So how about you describe that one a little bit?
1: Well, that's a great transition, actually. But yes, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it technically premiered back in 2019, but I know a lot of people really got to see it in last year is a film directed by celine sima and the synopsis reads on an isolated island in brittany at the end of the 18th century a female painter is obligated to paint a wedding portrait of a young woman now the story of this is very fascinating you know we talked about it uh, on the neon uh, episode but it's such a beautifully striking film i think we mentioned how like every single shot it feels like a painting the colors the composition of the shot everything just fits so beautifully where you get wrapped up and sucked into this world which I find amazing because I think really the best films out there are the ones where you feel like the world is alive and it's place. and what makes it such a compelling film is the relationship between the two main leads you know the the one girl who's more of like You know, from a a lower class is sent to to this Richard family to paint this portrait for this woman before she's inevitably married off to her suitor, and their relationship and how it goes from just a simple friendship to more romantic and something more. And what makes it such a beautiful film is it's not some kind of erotic kind of film where it's it could it could have easily been. There's so much more at play. There's there's this sense of longing the whole film. And I think how this is conveyed very well is from a lot of the different shots where there's these shots of, where they're very quiet and slow, sometimes just staring and looking and the contact of the eyes, you know, just staring into each other's soul, even for a moment before turning away and looking away. And what makes it just so compelling is you feel for these characters and you want to see them happy and, and, you know, it's an interesting journey showing, you know, what the gender and class norms were back then. Kind of like how you were mentioning with Emma. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's a truly unique film. I think is it feels like a landmark. It's it's a film that won't come come around that often because, you know, it. I would even consider it, you know, one of the greatest love stories we've seen in film in the last couple of years. And I'm sure you have similar feelings about it as well.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. This this is sort of a tricky one because, you know, I personally consider this a movie from last year, but I didn't get to watch it until after I did my, my top 10 list at the time. If I did, it probably would have been my number three movie. And then if I was to include it in this year, it probably would have been my number one or number two movie in this. I, I really do love this. You're absolutely right. Everything that you were saying. And of course, what Naomi was saying as well to praise it. I can't talk about this movie enough. It's just it's just so beautiful. And if people do want to hear our thoughts on it, they definitely should check out the, the neon episode because I think we go into it a lot more in depth there too. All right, my number four film is Land, directed by Chloe Zhao. After losing everything in the Great Recession, a woman embarks on a journey through the American West living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. So this is basically Francis McDermott working alongside, uh, basically a whole bunch of non-professional actors. She plays this woman who who sort of loses her job. She had recently lost her husband a few years prior, and she's sort of just, you know, moving around place to place wherever she can get work, meeting people. So we'll be introduced to a character for a little bit. They'll leave. They'll sort of come back later. She meets them again because she's constantly on the move. And it's just so beautiful. You know, I contrast it with Frances McDermott's role in Three Billboards, which I mentioned earlier, which she has so much fire and rage in that. And Frances McDermott is excellent for fire and rage. And then Nomadland is different because she has that fire and rage, but she doesn't let it out. Everything is inside of her. You can see it in her eyes and the way that she's holding back. You see the pain that she feels of of losing all of her money and not being able to afford her house anymore. The pain of not having her husband anymore to ground her. Uh, The pain of, you know, when she goes and visits her sister, the, you know, the, the sort of jovial nature that her and her husband are able to talk about uh, buying homes from other people during recessions and how that these are real people that are losing their homes sort of thing. There's so much depth to this film that isn't expressed with, ver- with words. It's expressed with looks and with long, steady shots where you just sort of have to contemplate the weight of everything. I think the other thing that really works for this is this is about, a, you know, a woman sort of, you know, homeless, basically. She lives in her van, but has to travel place to place. And there's nothing better than, you know, the American landscape. There are some absolutely gorgeous shots. She's in the Badlands, so you get to see all the, the unique hill formations there and the sun going down. So everything has this nice, beautiful orange glow. And then there's just other parts where even it's a little more barren and wastelandy and and parts of the desert that they're at it's still, there's still a beauty that's always present. And I think that's what really works for this is that it's tough that there's always sort of underlying beauty, but there's also underlying anger. And it really speaks to a lot of moments the way people are feeling. Not everyone is uh, as desperate uh, as, as her character is in this film, but we sort of feel the pinch. We we understand that, you know, we're of a younger generation. Who knows if we'll be able to buy a home? You know, that's something where we might not be able to do just because we just don't have that availability to us anymore. So it's sort of really tapping into that and the way other movies that sort of tackle the financial crisis have, but in a very different and unique way.
1: Well, that sounds amazing. And it's a film that I definitely, it's so high up on my list. And I, really want to see it I think it's supposedly supposed to come up on come out on Hulu uh not too long from now so I am thoroughly excited and invested in watching and wanting to watch that some things I have heard from it from some articles I've read is a lot of people have kind of compared it a lot of the longer scenic takes to kind of it being inspired by Malik a little bit
3: mm, which is a filmmaker yes. I,
1: re- I really love and you know just kind of you know, thinking about that, I love that kind of idea of nonverbal storytelling, where it's not really, in, it's not, you can't, can't just convey um, emotion and feelings through words, but it's also, you know, expression, and, you know, compositions of where they are in the shot, you know, aligned with, you know, be, being in the beauty surrounded of, na- uh, being surrounded in the beauty of nature, and then all that comes with that, but from if it's anything like what you're saying, it's, I, I can't wait to see it. I'm so excited.
0: It's sort of like the the beauty of Malik, which I think is a, is a good one, but also maybe uh, someone like Sean Baker, who who's done films uh, like The Florida Project and Tangerine, where it sort of explores a side of society that we don't often get to see on film. And he has, uh, sorry, and Chloe Zhao has so much sympathy for these characters, these people who are homeless they're not something that we should look down upon. They have stories. They, some of them choose to be homeless where they want to live in their vans. Some of them are by circumstance, whether it's through uh, loss of, of job or health or, or their partner who is earning money, things like that. But there is a real uh, love and care taken for these people who are, you know, not actors. These are actual people who are experiencing similar circumstances that the uh, Francis McDermott character is experiencing. All right, so the next film, uh, we've got Rachel Ho, who's going to introduce her favorite film of the year, and she guessed it on episode 129, Make Remake, Rebecca.
2: Hey, Dakota, it's Rachel Ho here. My favorite movie of 2020, without a doubt, was Sound of Metal. Darius Marder, the director, he was absolutely just ingenious in this one with the sound mixing uh, to deciding when to use subtitles, when not to. It's been a long time since I've been pulled into a story as wholly and as intensely as uh, Sound of Metal did for me. Riz Ahmed is absolutely incredible, and Paul Racy, Olivia Cook, tremendous in supporting roles. I dare I say it, it's
0: near a perfect movie. So once again, this is leading off into your next pick, Sound of Metal, so tell us all about that, Royce.
1: Oh, okay. So Sound of Metal is a film directed by Darius Marder. The synopsis is essentially about a drummer who begins losing his hearing and having to come to grips with a future that will be filled with silence. Now, the concept of this film, I found really fascinating when I first heard it was coming out. I knew Riz Ahmed was attached to it, and I knew it was essentially about, kind of like what I just said, about this drummer who, all he's in this band with his girlfriend, they travel in a van from place to place, you know, doing these small gigs. He's, they kind of do punk rock, so he's used to being surrounded by this loud noise. He's surrounded by it constantly. If anything you could even say it drowns out the stuff he doesn't enjoy about his life because music is all that his life is to that point. And so there's, there's this moment initially in the film where he's doing something, he's talking to some people and he's like looking down and he's kind of zoning out because he's like going through some vinyls and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, all the sound you hear, it just, in just an instant, like you snap your fingers and it's gone. And then he just kind of looks up and he's, and you realize he's having that first realization, like I can't hear anything, but he doesn't freak out. And it looks like he wants to scream in fear, like I can't hear anything, but he does it because he's in a crowded room of people. And it's such a terrifying moment because you see him kind of dismiss it because then his hearing comes back. It's like if, you know, you're listening to music with like headphones on and you hear it and then it cuts out for a second and then you're like, oh, this is this something I should be worried about. And then it cuts back and you're like, oh. No, I'm okay. It was just some kind of fluke. And that's what he thinks it is. But over time, it keeps happening over and over and over again. He's at this venue in this next thing where he's playing drums later that night. And it happens again. And he has this meltdown where he has to leave the the venue because he's so overcome by this emotion. You later find out he's told by this doctor that his ears are gradually, he's losing capability of losing them. Uh, of using them. And a uh, reason why he he's losing it at this excessive rate primarily is because of his drumming, because he's putting so much um, force out of his ears that it's actually speeding the process up. And that's why I think makes this such a compelling story is because you have this guy who's just trying to live out his passion, but at the expense of his own body, And it's that idea, like, what comes first, your body or your passion? Because that's all he thinks he is, you know. He thinks, I'm good at drumming, I'm good at nothing else. And he later gets sent to this school where he has to try learning ASL and try learning to live, become used to living in this silent world. And it's such a a sad film, but it's such a beautiful one, too, because he ends up realizing, without giving kind of too much away, the beauty of his predicament even though he saw it as a curse there's a lot of good that comes out of it and I know for me personally um I took an I I actually a couple semesters ago I took an ASL course just out of you know interest and it was such an amazing course you know I had a professor that was deaf and he taught us you know so I kind of know firsthand somewhat that process of kind of at least trying to learn so I can only imagine what it would be like to be you know where I am right now I can hear and then having to slowly like have to force myself to literally learn another language because otherwise I won't be able to communicate and I can't keep enough praise of this film. Riz Ahmed is fantastic in the leading role. And I think it's a film that it is, it should be demanded to be seen by anyone and everyone.
0: I I quite like this movie. I didn't love it. There, there were some uh, plotting issues that I I just had some trouble getting over where I I feel like there need to be a couple more scenes to sort of expand on some circumstances, but you know, all that aside, this might be one of the most unique, unique sounding movies ever. Uh, you, you don't really touch on that much, but like everything that, uh, that Riz Ahmed's character is going through, we get to hear it as an audience member. You know, we hear his hearing slowly going out and the muffledness of everything else. And then when it completely cuts out and, and, you know, different aspects like that and him sort of feeling sound, you know, there's this scene where he's banging on a slide, doing a drum beat on a metal slide and another deaf kid puts his head down on the slide to be able to feel the beat. And you sort of feel the beat like you would uh, in your chest sort of thing. Or like, if you've ever been to like a, like a, a really like a bass heavy concert and you know if you plug your ears you could still hear the music through the vibrations in your chest sort of thing and that's the way the movie feels like and that's absolutely stunning work by by Darius Martyr and his team to be able to do that and I think the other thing I really want to praise is Riz Ahmed is absolutely amazing, and I hope he gets nominated for Best Actor. But Paul Racy, who plays the the counselor at the the house that he he goes to live at, that's uh, a home for uh, deaf addicts, is is phenomenal. The way he has so much care and empathy, and passion, but also there's so much truth to his character because he is that person. You know, I was reading about him afterwards. I heard an interview with him. He really is a former veteran. He did lose his hearing. He is a former addict as well. Uh, Oh, sorry. He's actually never didn't lose his hearing. He is the child of deaf parents. So he was born learn, knowing sign language at the same time. And he actually Mm -hmm. uh, front a black Sabbath cover band where he sings and signs out the, the lyrics at the same time.
1: Well, that's amazing. I had no idea about that. But I think that, if anything, that makes the film better, you know, realizing some of the backstory, some of the actors involved. And I agree with you definitely. I think, I think, I think these actors should be nominated and hopefully even gets nominated for like sound design, like we talked about, Mm -hmm. like how well, you know, the sound in this film works, you know, when they do the transitioning between being able to hear and not hear. Um, It's I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed this film as well. Yeah. Uh, what was your number three pick?
0: Well, before we do that, I'm going to turn it over to regular guest Stephanie Pryor and her tough decision to name a best film of the year.
4: Hey,
5: Zoom listeners. This is Stephanie Pryor. And my pick for the best film of 2020 has to be Andrew Patterson's The Vast of Night. I thought the cinematography and the lighting in this film were fantastic. They just it added to the mysteriousness that was going on in this 1950s town with all these like smoke-filled rooms and long tracking shots it really added to like pull you in to the movie the pacing is spot on for such a slow burn but nothing feels boring and nothing feels too long everything is super meaningful not to mention the acting is phenomenal it was such an innovative way to tell an old story and it felt fresh and nostalgic at the same time so i was tuned in from the get-go not only did i want to know what would happen next but i needed to know what would happen next thanks guys
0: now my favorite my number three film of the year is the vast of night this is probably uh, a movie that i'm sure is the least heard of out of our entire list and I heard about it from the, the film podcast Film Spotting. It was a nominee for their Golden Brick Award, which is a underseen film by a new or emerging filmmaker. But basically, uh, the plot is one night in New Mexico in the late 1950s, a switchboard operator and radio DJ discover a strange audio frequency which could change the future forever. Everett, it's
4: Faye, and the sound came through the board and interrupted your radio show.
0: What a sound! Like. On effort. Now, on the surface, it sort of sounds interesting, but what makes the movie even more interesting is it starts out, you're in a living room and the camera slowly tracks towards a TV and it shows that you're watching this TV show called Paradox Theater, which is basically like Twilight Zone, this sort of um, science fiction TV show. So the entire movie is this episode of Paradox Theater where we know it's not real, it's just a TV show, which adds even more interesting layers to it. But you've got these uh, two young people, a, a DJ and a switchboard operator, where all of a sudden they start hearing weird noises through the airwaves, and they're trying to figure out what it is, and so much about this movie, just like Sound of Metal, has to do with sound. And so we get this scene where um, the DJ, he says, hey, has if anyone's heard this uh, sound before, give us a call. And so this guy calls, and he used to be in the army, and he starts telling this story about the time that he heard this sound. And the screen goes black, and we just hear the conversation as if we're listening to the radio. And so it's so fascinating from that. And then later on, we get another scene where uh, they, this these two young people, they go and someone in the town uh, knows about the sound as well. And she has a story to tell about uh, how she had heard it years ago uh, and sort of that effect. And so much about this, just like Sound of Metal, is about the sound design and what we can hear and not what we can see. It is a very low-key science fiction movie. You know, you're not going to have like... Uh, you know independence day where the spaceship comes and blows up half of earth and sort of this stuff where so much is about these aliens choose to communicate uh when they know that there's going to be not many people around because this takes place place in a small town the entire town is out watching a high school basketball game so it's just these two people that are listening to the radio and so it's just so fascinating I really don't want to say more about this movie because it's the type of movie that you really don't want to know much about. But I highly recommend it if you like sci-fi movies; it's going to be right up your alley.
1: Well, that sounds amazing because it, you know, I think like I said about Emma, it was like a film I heard about, but not too much, so I didn't really give it any notice. But you know, I, I am a huge fan of science fiction, so it definitely sounds like a film that would be right up my alley. And I think I think it's kind of cool. You were like you were saying, it's not like a traditional alien invasion film. It's just a movie about sound and just a couple people who happen to be in the right place at the right time that hear something.
3: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think that's a really cool and unique concept that, you know, I that is exciting to see in films, especially, you know, just concepts that you don't, you're not really used to seeing. And so that's definitely one I'll, I plan on checking out for sure.
0: It's a type of movie where I can guarantee you have not seen anything like this the way it's shot. So it's so unique. And now it is time to hear our final voicemail, and that is from Sam Blakely of Please Watch This. He also guested on the episode comparing Citizen Kane and Mank, so let's hear him talk about Soul. Hi, I'm Sam Blakely. I'm in the uh, Please Watch This podcast. Since Parasite doesn't count, you North Americans, as a uh, 2020 film, I'm going to go for the film Soul. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, Pixar number... It is a majestically beautiful film, a great companion piece to Inside Out, which, for me, was the best film of the 2010s. It's immaculately, intricately, fantastically researched, as all these Pixar films are. You know, they take four or five years to create. And it, it hooked me right from the start. You know, very early on in the film, he, uh, the main character's talking about why he loves jazz and piano and music, and you, you're just taking in right from there and it has a deep deep message for a young audience it's not a children's film it's just a child-friendly film i love soul all right royce once again there's another introduction for you what is your number two film
1: Uh, my number two film is soul directed by um, pete doctor and uh this is the newest release from pixar um, that they've had in the last couple years. And essentially what it's about is this, this uh, middle school teacher named Joe Gardner who teaches jazz music. And essentially where uh, he gets he gets a call from a friend to get this gig that he's been wanting to do because he's really trying – he loves being a teacher. He loves teaching ch- kids why he loves jazz music so much and he wants to inspire them is, uh, about what he loves as much as he's inspired. But at the same time, he wants to make it up the ladder in a way where he wants to be a professional musician and he wants to make it to this status of, you know, calling himself as a musician because he's wanted it for so long. And so he, when he finally gets this opportunity, he jumps at a chance to it. But along the way, he kind of has this incident where he falls into this, uh, I, I guess, this sewer drain when he's walking across the street and he enters into this soul world where he he it's, a, it's so hard to describe what exactly happens but he essentially transports into his body's like his soul like the, what his soul looks like like outside of its physical body and shenanigans ensue from there and he tries to kind of go and there's a lot of other crazy things that happen too but he essentially it's his journey of discovering who he is as a person and who he is outside of what his talents, and gifts are. And what I think is really amazing about this film is how it really details that journey. I don't think it's been really since Inside Out, which Pete Doctor made, that Pixar has made such a beautiful, beautiful contemplation on the meaning of life. I think Pixar at their best, that's what their films are about. It's about teaching kids and adults, both equally, what the beauty of life is. And I think this is a really great example by showing, you know, sometimes I think growing up, we have these talents and these gifts that are very unique to us, but we think they define us. And without those gifts, we're really nothing. What this film highlights is, yes, those gifts make us special, but that's not all of it. We have souls, no pun intended, <laughs> underneath that where our our true selves are that not a lot of people get to see. And I think this film, on a visual level, is amazing. You know, it's going to win Best Animated Film. Not even, there, there's no chance I don't see this winning. But for good reason, too. I, I'm i really glad that a lot of people, even though theaters were closed, a lot of people were able, to, were able to see this. And it's gotten the attention it's received. Because, you know, it's a breathtaking film. And I think it has a lot of valuable lessons that are going to resonate with children and their parents that are watching it with them
0: i i finished watching this movie and i basically my first instinct was to say like this is not a kid's movie like i, I was like uh, in oh no tears it's for like a good chunk of it i'm like there's no way kids are going to understand the themes that are going on in this and of course i've talked to some friends that have young kids that are like oh yeah my kids loved it i'm like yeah but did they, did they really get it did they really understand it like that hit me hard
1: no i i definitely see what you're saying it's I I think there are a lot of concepts that are going to go over kids' heads, you know. But I think that's what makes Pixar films so great is they get better with time. You know, they're films that you can enjoy on a very basic level, you know. But if you want to, there's – but then if you want to kind of get more out of it, there is more to get. And I think that's what makes Pixar – the most unique animation studio there is out there because they do make films like that like you can and sure you know a lot of kids are gonna do love this film but as they keep watching it years and years from now they are going to take new things out of it and say I know I can say the same for previous Pixar films I think it has this timeless I think this film especially a lot with along with their other films it has that timeless quality about it where there's a lot of concepts that that are going to resonate with us, you know, as the years go by. And I think really that's kind of the hallmark of a great film and a great story when you're able to do something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the music was just absolutely terrific. Trent Reznor and Atticus. Oh yeah. The scoring. And then John Batiste did all the, the piano playing as well. Questlove did the drumming in it. Like this, this movie's music just blows you away. All right. My number two film is never rarely, sometimes always directed by Eliza Hitman. It's about a pair of teenage girls in rural Pennsylvania who travel to New York City to seek out medical help after an unintended pregnancy. This this is, uh, along with with movies like The Assistant, it is a very quiet, unassuming movie. There's, you know, no big scenes, no big moments, things like that. It's just little by little to see how they go through. It's about this young woman who uh, gets pregnant unwantedly, and, you know, she goes to her local clinic in our small Pennsylvania town and it turns out that it's the type of clinic that uh, is going to lie to women and get force them to basically keep the baby she later learns that the clinic even lied how far along she was which made her having access to abortion trickier because the procedure was more difficult which is one way that they will lie to women in order to ensure that they aren't getting abortion sort of thing but this movie is just so tough to watch at times because it seems like there's always a threat around the corner. You know, I, I, I sort of think a little bit of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, how there's no men in that movie. And then suddenly towards the end, when a man shows up, it just seems so out of place. In this, it's sort of similar where every time there's a man on screen, you know it's not safe for these girls. Whether or not they pose an actual threat or whether it's just one that could be a threat. And and it's terrifying. You know, you look back in some of the the little moments and you're like, her stepfather, I don't know if I trust this guy. What's the deal with him? And we don't hear anything. We don't know any stories about him. But like, there's just something about it where she clearly isn't safe in the house with her stepfather. And then they go out and they meet this guy when they're in New York and you don't really know what's going on with him. Can he be trusted? What's the deal with that? Even so much as like seeing a security guard, like what's the deal with that? Like there's so many different things. Of course, there's like one, the, the, the titular scene where she goes to this clinic in New York and there is um, a doctor there, I don't know if she's a therapist or, or she's a medical doctor, but she's basically trying to figure out a little bit more information about this young woman. And she has to answer these questions with never, rarely, sometimes, or always about her, her history, both her, her sexual health and her mental health. And, and just sort of to assess the situation, to see if she's in any imminent danger or things like that. And that's sort of the, like the real crux of the movie where we sort of things really open up. And that's, you know, a simple scene where, the characters responding with one word they're saying, sometimes they're saying, never they're saying nothing at all. And that's the big emotional heart of this movie. And it really cuts deep.
1: Yeah. You know, I think you made some really good points on this and it's, it's a film that eluded my list, even though it was very, you know, I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think what the most distressing thing about the film is simply the age of these girls. Mm -hmm. Like they're really young. I forgot how, Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure they're either either like 16 or 17. I think the the main character is. But yeah, something like that. But it's so sad seeing her have to make this literally life altering choice. You know, she's pregnant. And, you know, kind of like that titular scene you were talking about where she's in that room and she's answering those questions. You don't know exactly what happened. There's a lot of hints, you know, where there's a lot of hints that it was against her will. And mm-hmm. she didn't have a choice. And that's what makes it the most sad. it's It's such a distressing moment because you realize she's a victim in this situation. And to see her go through that pain is startling. and kind of like what you were saying, how the can't how the characters are framed. You're right. Every time a guy's in a shot, you're like, "Oh man, this guy's bad news." And the it's the way how the director puts you in the mindset of the girls. They see everything as a threat. Because that's how they're feeling and experiencing life. I think there's this really interesting shot um, when, you know, she, uh, she's um, on this kind of table bed and mm-hmm. they're, and she's like, oh, the girl's like, oh, can you hear the sound of your baby? And there's this interesting moment where she, she looks at the monitor and then she turns her head and the camera kind of moves with her. And in that moment, you can feel what she's going through, that realization, like there's a living being inside me right now. What am I going to do? And it's it's so I keep saying distressing, but that's really the only way I can think of it to describe it. You know, you're just because I, I I'll, I'll never be able to imagine what it's like being in that place. You know, I don't think, you know, the guy I won't be able to. So to see her go on this journey where she had essentially, you know, begins the crux of her womanhood traveling to New York City to get this abortion. It's such a distressing moment uh, This because it's such a difficult choice. And I know it's it's definitely, it doesn't feel like another abortion film. You know, it's something that's been talked about in a lot of different films. But I think it's something, a film that both people that are both pro-life and pro-choice, even though they might have their disagreements, you know, it's a film that can be watched and, and observed kind of on that level. And it can spark more discussion because this is a huge issue. You know, we're hearing a lot about this, especially with bills and laws getting passed. Kind of like what we were even talking about with, you know, boy state, like a lot of those boys were talking about abortions a lot. It's this issue that both cons- people that are, you would say, are more on the right and both on the left. These are huge. It's- abortion is considered a huge issue on both sides. and There's this constant war and that debate about what the right choice is. You know, should the woman, woman choose? Should she not be able to choose? And, um, you know, kind of like you pointed out, I think it it is an amazing film. And I think it's an essential one that a lot of people should watch. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think the real key is, it, is just knowing that you got a 16-year-old or however sure that she is having to become an adult in a situation where she shouldn't have to become an adult at that age.
1: Yeah, no, it's such a, you know, it's so disheartening to watch, you know, because some people have, some kids have to grow up, you know, and grow up at an earlier age than others. But that's such a jump, like just a girl who's just enjoying her life in high school. Now at this point where she's contemplating, like, do I have to be a mother? Like, oh, look at all these responsibilities I'm going to have now. And this wasn't even something I chose or wanted. And it's such a weird, it's such a hard place to be in. But I think the film captures it in the best possible way. It could Mm -hmm. have.
0: Yeah, I agree. Now, before we reveal our number one picks, uh, I want to shout out some films that just missed the cut. Uh, Royce, what were some of your honorable mentions?
1: Um, some honor from honorable mentions right off the bat were, you know, the rest of the films in the small acts anthology. There was about three uh three others. Um I think they're all very good, but not on the same level as the other two I mentioned, so I would include those. Um something else that was just like we mentioned, never really, sometimes always I would put on that list. Um, The Invisible Man was a film I also enjoyed a lot, as well as Tenet. Um and then lastly, I would probably say uh, Borat as well. But um, besides that, I think th- this was all things considering, even though a lot of things got delayed, I thought this was a really good year for film. And uh, like we've been talking about, a lot of amazing, unique films came out this year. And I think, to be honest, I think if the films that were supposed to release this year did get released, I don't think some of these films we mentioned would be on this list. I think they would easily be overshadowed. So I think the good we can see out of even though a lot of films got delayed is it forced us to watch a lot of films we wouldn't normally prioritize and i i think by do i think by and i think that's gonna it definitely gives me um it's changed my view on how i watch movies like i think from now on i think i will consider watching films i might normally put off for whatever reason because i think there's a lot of hidden gems intermingled you know among the releases that are coming in and i'm sure you could probably agree with that as well
0: yeah yeah I, I agree uh i i usually try to make time for for the smaller films but it's nice that i didn't have to worry about oh do i do i watch the new james bond movie or a new superhero movie or do i watch this really small indie movie that i i'm very curious about but i know it might be a bit of a tougher watch so i'm glad i was able to kind of prioritize what i really wanted to watch this year Yeah. Um, Did you have any honorable mentions on your end? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, you know, I'm not going to repeat any of the ones that you had talked about because I feel like I already shared my thoughts on them, but uh, some other ones that just missed the cut uh, include The Kid Detective, which is a a Canadian movie starring Adam Brody. Really interesting, dark, funny, weird movie. Uh, The documentary David Byrne's American Utopia, probably one of the best concert films I've ever seen. Lucky Grandma, this really funny... uh, Chinese-American film about uh, a grandma who uh, steals money from the Chinese gang and has to outrun them and outwit them, and she does. uh, First Cow, which you had talked about, and then Black Bear would probably be the last one where I was uh, referring at the beginning of the show where I was talking about how I saw this movie at a film festival screening and now it's uh, being released more widely and it's kind of cool to be able to see all the discourse and be like, ah, I've seen it months ago and now you're all just catching on to what a great movie this is not by choice, but because it wasn't available to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for
1: sure. Definitely.
0: All right. So we are here. We are at the top of our list. And what is your number one film?
1: My number one film is Hidden in Life, which originally came out in 2019, but didn't really get a wider release until 20, uh, last year. And it's directed by, it's the newest film by Terrence Malick. And, That's always exciting news to me. Every time I hear there's a new Terrence Malick film comes out, because it's like, yes, he's making another movie. It's so exciting. Because, you know, for years, he's really, even though I haven't seen too many of his films yet, each one I have, I've loved a lot. He has this unique style about him that puts him in a completely different conversation when it comes into filmmaking. He's kind of created his own style of filmmaking, you know, that um, even though he started off with more narrative films in his very early years, the the last couple of years, he he's made more, much more experimental films, you know, especially like Tree of Life really highlighted that. That's a film that I love immensely, and that resonated with a lot of people, and some people not so much. And I think uh, Hidden in Life really the continues that tradition of his uh, his style of filmmaking, uh, even though this one's actually based on a true story. Uh, I'm gonna butcher this guy's name, but it was it's essentially about this Aust- Austrian farmer named Franz. Um, jar, jar, I'm not, I'm not gonna try that. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, he, essentially, he's live. He lives in this place in uh this beautiful farmhouse in Austria, uh, high up in the mountains of the Dolomites, which is over in um, kind of in, on the Italian Austrian border, um, in the 1940s, around the time when the Nazis are coming to power, and he's a former soldier himself, but he's left in this crucial decision where he has to decide to, you know, join the army and support the Nazi regime or choose not to be labeled a traitor. And what's such an amazing film about this is him it all going around his choice because throughout the film, it's shown that he's a very strong Christian. You know, we, he has these, you know, beliefs and these morals that he feels obligate, obligated to. They're things that are very important to him. And what what makes this such an amazing story is not only is it true, but the extent in which he goes, even willing to sacrifice, you know, spending time with his family because he gets arrested for his beliefs, for choosing, you know, not to fight because he doesn't support Hitler and he sees the devastation that's coming from it. But on the other end, he's being told by people in his village, like, you're a traitor because you're you're not a nationalist, you know, and it's it's really disturbing going back and hearing some of the things you're saying because they were saying because we're kind of saying some similar things today, kind of like you know being scared of immigrants and you know being worried about these people coming in and potentially taking over you know your your own country and your way of living which is just another way of the governments use propaganda in order to you know essentially take part in atrocities but what makes the hidden life so amazing and it's why it's such a great film is not only because of how well shot it is but just that essential story of choosing to do the right thing no matter what the cost. And I think it does have a lot of timely topics that it it, it touches on, but it's just brilliant done from the, the the score to the cinematography to the acting, you know, everything is just incredibly well done. And it's, it shows once again, that Terrence Malick is, you know, one of the greatest directors of our time.
0: Yeah. I, I liked it. I didn't love it. You know, it's, it's sort of, interesting because my favorite Terrence Malick film is The New World, which, you know, apart from his like two earliest films is his most narrative based movie. And then it seems like every movie after The New World, he sort of drifted further and further away from having structure in a real narrative. I really like The Tree of Life. But, like, you rewatch it, and it's a very fragmented movie. There isn't a lot of plot going on there. You get the gist of it because it's so well edited and put together, but there isn't a ton of story there. And I sort of feel like A Hidden Life sort of bridges his two styles, where he's got so much imagery and uh, narration that doesn't really mean anything other than talking about the beauty of life. But then there's also very clearly this story arc about... Him in the village, he has to fight for the Nazis. He refuses to. He's put in prison. And then his, his battle to be released afterwards. And so it's like a you, it's, I like that it's sort of in between of those two styles. I think Malik does work best when he has a bit more structure to him because we know he can do the beauty. He can shoot the beautiful landscapes and have everything feel dreamy. And you're sort of questioning everything around you and appreciating life. And he's such a, like, I would call him an environmental director. The way he Mm -hmm. has appreciation and love for the beauty of Earth really sort of shines through in his movies. And this one, I think, is a case of, uh, you know, humanity being like, why must I fight when, you know, we can just be taking care of ourselves and making everything else better. It's sort of weaving that sort of environmental aspect but into humanity and so i think that's really interesting as a whole there's some stuff that didn't work for me it was a little bit too long for me but i i do really appreciate everything that it was doing
1: yeah i mean that's fair enough and that is a common criticism is a lot of people have cited his films are too long and sometimes to the point of maybe being pretentious it it can sometimes feel like that but at the same time when you really kind of i guess kind of realize what he's going for it all does kind of make sense but I do love the point you made where where you said it, this film kind of feels like a bridging of the gap between is more kind of experimental loose narrative with a more you know a act like a three-act structure more of a structural basis for a film and yeah I, I think it kind of resides in that in-between place but uh, you know it was it a was film I was able to catch in theaters at the beginning of last year and I'm so excited I did because I think theaters are the only place to watch his movies because of the scale he puts things at. But yeah, this is a film like I adore. And yeah, I I mean, it was my favorite film from last year and I can't, I'm so excited to see what he does next. Um, What's your number one pick now that we're in this last portion?
0: My number one is The Trial of the Chicago Seven.
1: We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits
4: or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. There's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? (gasps) Holy shit.
0: (laughs) You all right? Which was directed by Aaron Sorkin and it's the story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising of the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Now, despite this movie is about 1968, this movie is about 2020, and, and everything about the way uh, people wish to protest in their grievances against the government, the way the government and the court system reacts to that, we have to look no further than Uh, The way that the Black Lives Matter protests, especially in the aftermath of the the George Floyd killing and how that was received versus how the uh, Capitol riots only a few weeks ago were received in very, very different systems of justice that we, we can see here. And this movie really puts that on display that despite everything that has changed and all the progress we've made, there is some stuff that are still the same. Now, I'm still not fully on board with Aaron Sorkin as a director. Molly's game was just kind of so-so for me, but I can forgive that because his script, once again, is is absolutely top-notch. He is, bar none, one of the greatest screenwriters ever, and, and this is just another fantastic screenplay where, you know, the, the dialogue comes at you a mile a minute. It's always preachy, but you know what? I'm, I'm completely there for it, and he managed to get this gigantic ensemble cast headlined by sasha baron cohen who is this like really out there hippie radical hippie who doesn't seem to take anything seriously but later on we learn that he does versus uh the eddie redmayne character who is very serious about the way he wants to make social justice happen in the slights that are happening to other people. So we get to see these two sort of characters, despite being on the same side, battle constantly. And if that doesn't really describe, you know, liberal politics today, there's nothing that will. Uh, But then there's, you know, everyone else in this is absolutely fantastic, you know. Um, Mark Rylance as their lawyer, who, you know, kind of seems like a little out there hippie lawyer, but he's actually a really smart person that really knows what to do. Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the prosecutor. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who plays Bobby Seal in one of the most harrowing scenes when he gets literally gagged in a courtroom, uh, despite the fact that he is protesting that he doesn't have his own lawyer present and he is being lumped in with uh, the Chicago 7 group just because he is a member of the Black Panther Party is some truly horrific stuff. But like, one after another, this is heavyweight acting. You know, uh, we get um, Michael Keaton that shows up three quarters of the way through the movie, is in it for 10 minutes, puts in absolute work, leaves, and we don't hear from him again. Like, it's that sort of movie where everyone does their job.
1: No, yeah, I would definitely agree with a lot of the points you made. And it's a film I definitely enjoyed a lot. Um, I think simply why it didn't make my list is probably just because, kind of like you pointed out, like I think Sorkin is at his best when he sticks to writing, not really directing, because I feel like his writing is at this level that's far superior to a lot of other people, um, a lot of other writers currently. But his directing doesn't really work as much. I also felt like some of the acting... Um, Uh, didn't work as well as I wanted it to but I think the central story is fantastic even though I think you know like I mentioned I think Mangrove did a much better job doing courtroom dramas I think it is really interesting that we're getting this influx of you know stories throughout history of injustices especially that that were done under the guise of um, you know racial or political injustice and kind of like you mentioned how applicable it is to today's world. We're like, you know, with those same issues that we're dealing with now, you know, those were happening decades ago. So it's history once again repeating itself. And I think that's the biggest praise we can give it is just the timing of this film. Cause it like you said, it does feel like a film uh that's suited for a time like this, considering all the term turbulence that's going on in our world and how there is that constant influx of injustice. And it's not until a couple people decided to put their foot down, like enough. Like, we can't have any more that work change actually uh, really does happen.
0: Yeah. I, I think you hit on a lot of great points where I think it just, at the end of the day, just, you know. We probably feel the same way about this movie. It just worked for me just a little bit more, but I completely agree mm-hmm. with, with everything you, that you're saying there. So uh, I'm I'm glad you you were able to sort of see the same stuff. And I'm sure if I had seen Mangrove, maybe that would have been my number one movie instead because I've definitely heard a lot <laughs> of similar things where it's like, hey, if you like Ch- Trial of Chicago 7, you'll probably like this courtroom drama even more.
1: Yeah, I'd I say that's definitely a great comparison between the two. But it sounds like overall, I, I think you've made... you made some amazing points about the films you listed and this has been a really awesome discussion just kind of talking about a lot of the films that came out this year and I think we I think there were a lot of like really great points made especially by you on a lot of the films you mentioned
0: oh well thank you that my ego really appreciates it Um, (laughs) it is is always a pleasure having you on Royce thank you so much for joining me on this adventure you are once again a fantastic guest
1: Thank you so much again for having me. Like I always enjoy and look forward to doing these episodes with you.
0: Well, this definitely won't be the last time.
1: Yeah, I don't think it will be either. I think there's still, there's definitely one coming down later down the line, of for course. sure.
0: Now, I also want to thank Stephanie Pryor, Sam and Hugh from Please Watch This, Callum from Scare Producing, Rachel from rachelkh.com, YouTuber Naomi Wada Platt. John Brody, and Maria Escarbano for sharing their thoughts on their movie year as well. Stay tuned for next week where Rachel will be back on the show as we celebrate Lunar New Year. Visit ContraZoomPod.com to see the full rankings. You can also follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you could rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it would be a huge help for us to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. (laughs)